extremely happy to welcome Dr. Jane Nodell, Professor of Economics at the Specialty in Financial History, to Forward Guidance. Jane, great to have you here. Uh, it's it's really an honor to have you here. I read your book while I was in college, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's just wonderful to, to get a chance to pick your brain. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I really appreciate the invitation. I'm always very flattered when anyone reads my book, so, you know. Well, I was I was flattered that you accepted my invitation. Your book on the Second Bank of the United States is uh, seminal, and I read it in my financial history class in college. I wrote my paper about uh, the the Second Bank, which relied a lot on your work. Um, so I want to delve deep into central banking, particularly within the U.S. Central Bank. So there's the before the Federal Reserve, there was the Second Bank of the United States. And then there was the First Bank of the United States. Uh, let's dive deep into the First Bank of the United States, which I think was founded in the, the late 1700s. What were the motivating forces of why the United States needed a central bank or the creators thought that they needed a central bank? And to what degree was it different from the Federal Reserve that we think of today? Mm, okay, great question. So the First Bank was chartered in 1791, and it had a 20-year charter. And um, Dick Silla has written a lot about the First Bank and also David Cohen, one of his students, has a very nice book on the First Bank. And it's, it's broadly agreed that the purpose of the First Bank was to assist with Hamilton's project, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton being the first Secretary of the Treasury, to... The, the first bank was part of Hamilton's project to place the finances of this new federal government on a firmer footing. Um, right, so we had the, um, the Revolutionary War comes to an end. The 1780s were a period of a lot of monetary and financial chaos, really. Um, and there was no real stable monetary unit. Um, there were very few banks and the federal government had assumed a lot of the debts of the state governments, right? Well, this was part of Hamilton's plan was that we had all this revolutionary war debt and the federal government was going, was to assume much of that debt, which would put the state governments when the states were very powerful at this time, right? The state governments on better fiscal footing because they no longer had to service this debt. But now that responsibility shifted over, over to the federal government. And so the bank was going to assist with that, you know, refinancing of the debt. The, the debt became longer term debt. So that was, you know, part of how they paid for it, which is you're going to push out the repayment period, you know, many, many years. And we're going to give the U.S. government the customs revenue. And so the, 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 that really built the credibility of the federal government in its ability to actually service the debt. But you still needed a bank to kind of make it all work. And that was the purpose for the first bank. And what was money back then? When someone said, oh, uh, the U.S. government owed money, to whom did it owe that money and in what form? Did it borrow money by uh, the, the lender 
gave them gold and the U.S. government gave them a certain certificate. Was that certificate viewed as money? Did uh, banks, individual banks themselves, did, did, did they have sort of circulating bills that were backed by gold? Were those bills viewed as money or was only gold mm. or as you, know, you and other scholars call it specie? Yes. Uh, was, that, was that considered money? Sort of when people say, oh, the U.S. government owed $35 million. I'm just making that number up. Uh, what is that $35 million? What was that? What was $1 meant to be? Because again, you know, the U.S. dollar, as we know it, the greenback did not exist till the 1860s. So, right. So the the dollar was defined um, by law in a, the coinage law of I think 1790. And I mean that was part of you're going to have one nation, you're going to have now one dollar, because in the colonial period, all the co- colonies basically had their own dollars right, which was paper money in the 18th century. Um, and those dollars had different values vis-a-vis specie. Okay. So specie, the main form of specie was the piece of eight, the peso, the very fine, finely produced silver coin, most of, most of which was being minted in Mexico. Which was a colony of Spain. So it was a Spanish uh, piece of eight. So specie, gold and silver, it was a silver coin. That's right. And a lot of the gold was also, the gold coin was also minted in South America. Because, of course, we had very little, you know, we started, we did some, you know, mining of gold and silver in the 19th century. But this time, nothing. We're doing nothing. So we had the silver and the gold and all these colonies had different values vis-a-vis the specie. Now, I would argue that the specie was the was like the the best form of money, right? So it's useful to think of money as a hierarchy. There's mm-hmm. always like one kind of at the top, and then others are kind of defined in relationship to that one. Okay, so this was still you know specie was really king at this time. Um, now, and the U when the U.S. government borrowed, and I believe that they were borrowing specie, and it was. When they borrowed abroad, right, Mm -hmm. they're borrowing in specie equivalents. So they're borrowing in sterling, that is from England. They're borrowing in French francs, Mm -hmm. and they're borrowing in guilders. So it turns out that that Amsterdam, Holland, was actually a very important creditor of the United States. Um, And so we had to make repayments to those people in basically the specie equivalents of their currencies in order to maintain good standing as as a borrower, which is very important to any new nation. Mm. And if you're a individual in a developed country, like let's say the Netherlands, you have gold and silver, what might tempt you to lend silver to a country that only started existing a few years ago and that you know is is fighting a war i mean it seems like a pretty risky investment what to what degree did the u.s treasury before it even existed did they um the, the rebels uh, revolutionary war how did they fund their efforts because you know if, if you're a, a dutch banker it seems like a kind of a risky investment right and so obviously the during the war, you know, the, the U.S. was not issuing any of this kind of security. So when I was, what I was referring to before was like Hamilton's refinancing scheme. That, you know, we're now a new nation, you know, hopefully we're putting, you know, let bygones be bygones. 
-hmm. and we're going to you know try to attract some capital from Europe and England you know in the Revolutionary War you know the French were always at war with England so they're happy to support you know these these rebels and I think you know Amsterdam there could have been some of the same thinking um, in the Amsterdam in the Amsterdam in Amsterdam and Holland run in the Dutch um, you know that's that's a really good question um, but they did do some borrowing to the revolutionary effort which was very important because otherwise it would have been even more inflationary than it was right and so when you say the you know war is often inflationary uh, because it costs so much as well as it destroys the, the factors of production um, to what degree yeah was the revolutionary war inflationary and inflationary relative to what so so you know we have inflation now oh the dollar the US dollar is is buying me fewer goods. The euro is buying fewer goods. But what was that currency that was buying fewer goods? Was it only the paper currency that was experiencing inflation? And yeah, also, can you just speak to the financing of the Revolutionary War? And, you know, I, I recall about how, you know, soldiers weren't getting paid. Like, who 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 were being lent to? Because there was no U.S. government. Yeah. Well, there was a Continental, Continental Congress, basically, mm -hmm. which was doing, which was managing the financing of the war. Um. So there were the state governments or colonies or whatever they were at this time, I guess they're no longer colonies, they're state governments in a way, are still issuing their bills of credit. And they're helping finance the war with their borrowing and their currency emissions. And then the Continental Congress is also issuing currency called the Continental Dollar. And my colleague Farley Grubb at Delaware has just written a new book that's coming out next year with under University of Chicago Press about the continental dollar. Um, and I mean, everyone said that it was, it depreciated rapidly. And in, in a sense it did in, in that there was high price inflation. I wouldn't call it hyperinflation, but certainly, you know, it was much at a much, prices were rising at a much higher rate than than we're experiencing now, even though people feel like it's a high rate, you know, very, very, we have a lot of price stability compared to what was going on then, right? Because, you know, what's going on in a war is you have, you have less output, including agricultural output, right? Which is the main thing you need to feed the soldiers. And you have this government kind of trying to bid up the price of all this stuff just to get their hands on it, right? At the Towards the end of the war, the government was actually just seizing people's goods and services. Yeah. Impressing it. Mm. Okay. So luckily that didn't go on for very long because, you know, that that's a very, very hard thing for a government to do and still have the support of its people. Right. And so after the Revolutionary War, you have all these debts to U.S. citizens, to creditors abroad, to soldiers who were paid in, you know, basically made up money, IOUs. And I think there was a few rebellions about uh, soldiers not getting paid. So there needed something to be done. What was it about the first bank of the United States that solved these problems? And yeah, let's just highlight how the first bank was not created for price stability, or maybe it was, but you know, did, they did not even care about the unemployment rate or things that we consider today. It was a, a transformation of debt into equity, which is another parallel with the second bank, right? Right, right, right. So the, the first bank was the fiscal agent of the U.S. government. 
right? So the U.S. government needed somebody to be, you know, that it would, some entity that it would use to buy goods and services and collect taxes, okay? So as I said before, the customs revenues were a very important revenue source. So the first bank was kind of a tax, in a way, you know, a tax collector, or that was where payments were made into the first bank. And the first bank was keeping its money on a par with specie, okay? So it's that convertibility of dollar claims into specie that the first bank is maintaining. A true gold standard or silver standard, whereas many banks and states had suspended convertibility to gold and silver during the war. Right, exactly, exactly. Very good. And so now the the new banks, there's like just a handful of them when the when the first bank is created. I think there's one in Boston, there's one in New York, there's one in, in uh, Philadelphia. That's it. Um, and they're all maintaining specie. And then, but the first bank is also offering an attractive deal to people who hold debt of the U.S. government, which is they're saying. You can convert your debt to stock equity in the First Bank of the United States, and we're going to buy your debt at a price well above the market price. Okay, And they did the same thing with the Second Bank of the United States. So what that does is it takes a chunk of debt off of the, off of the market, right? And it helps build the you know, improves the value of the remaining debt because now it's more credible for the federal government to say, we're good, we're, we can service this debt. We've got enough revenue to meet our, our regular interest payments in specie. Now, I'm thinking that this debt might have also been like consoles, like with actually not just long-term, just kind of permanent, <laughs> permanent debt, but I'm not positive about that. Uh- in the market, they call that, I think, zero-coupon bonds or, or like the, the 100-year Austrian bond. <laughs> you know, it's, it's never deliverable. Right, right. Never deliver Or the console of, you know, Great Britain. Uh-uh. But it's paying, con- it's paying coupons because mm-hmm. you're, you're delivering your interest in a regular way. And that's an important part of, build, I think, the, building the market because people, you know, entities holding it wanted that income, wanted the return. So how successful was the, the first bank in accomplishing its goals? And why was it not rechartered in, let's see, 18, it started in 1791. So it's rechartered came up in 1811. It wasn't rechartered. Why was that the case? And then we'll go to the war of uh, 1812. And then our, our favorite topic, of course. Okay, <laughs> now, I mean, I haven't really studied the, con- the, the congressional debates um, very closely, but there is a new book by Eric um, Lamazov that I was recently told about called Reconstructing the National Bank Controversy, Politics and Law in the Early American Republic. And so anyone who wants to look into that, that's also University of Chicago. He, you know, because there's all these debates. There's this a 1791 debate about creating the first bank. Then there's another debate in 1811, which where we are now, about whether the first bank should be rechartered. Okay. There it went down essentially on, you know, was it this debate about constitutionality? Okay. Um, and 
Lamazov really kind of gets into this a lot. And it was, it went down, you know, they, they, and he, I think he, he may argue that in 1791, there weren't any other state, many other state banks. By 1811, there's a lot of banks around. So if you're going to use the necessary clause of the Constitution to justify it, maybe you could do that in 1791, but you can't do it in 1811. So I think by 1811, they're feeling like, we're good. We don't really need this bank anymore. Like the reasons why we need it in 1791 are not there anymore. Let's, you know, we think we can manage without it. I think that's essentially because we're so concerned about this, whether or not we've overstepped, right? Because remember, the states have the power in this period of time. Federal government is not very big. You know, the, you know, we, we had, we, whoever we are, right, had fought this war against an empire, you know. And so in many people's minds, the federal government was kind of like the recreation of that kind of power, you know. And we don't want that, you know. We want... We want power to be dispersed. We want, we want local control. And right. First, so it was it was these ideological, political, philosophical uh, uh, motivations that led to the first bank of the United States not being recharted in 1811. Literally one year later, there was the War of 1812. Wars are very expensive, and there's suddenly a, a, an immense amount of debt that's I issued again. And I'm just you're reading from from one of your articles about how. By 1814, I mean, I think literally the British burned down much of D.C. Um, most state banks had suspended gold and silver payments, specie payments. Banknotes traded at heavy discounts, uh, and tr the Treasury ex was forced to accept state banknotes uh, for taxes and, and uh, um, duties and stuff like that at face value. So anytime they collected taxes, they were losing lots of money. So there's an immense uh, fiscal disaster once again visits the U.S. government uh, and as a result, there was the, uh, the the Bank of the United States. And I you know, just want to say that uh, your book on the Second Bank of the United States is a leading book that uh, you know people should read if they want sort of the authoritative uh, take of, of, of what had happened from, from beginning to end. It's called The Second Bank of the United States, quote, Central Banker in an Era of Nation Building, 1816 to 1836. Sent the word central is in quotation marks, which we can uh, get to a, a little bit. But uh, yeah... Um, tell, t walk us through the, uh, the the founding of the second bank. Just how necessary was it? Yeah. So here, people have to read Lomazov, but but what? So what? What I my take on it was, you know, and my my book is less about, you know, the the pol the politics. Yes. Of the second bank, which are incredibly important. You know, I just kind of felt like let me. I'm going to think about this the economic economics of the second bank in a way and the plumbing the plumbing the payment system i mean the payment system is a basic infrastructure um and you got to get that right you know and if you don't get it right you're going to have crises recurrent crises you're going to have loss of well-being loss of output all the rest of it so the payment system was not in good shape coming out of the war of 1812 as you noted um and there was just this, what I emphasize is the nation building part. So the other thing that happens is the the territory under the control of the federal government has expanded significantly. Okay. So 
because they, as a result of the War of, of 1812, they pick up some Western land, a lot of this Western land. Okay. So that means you have to start installing federal government services out there, um, many of which are, you know, managing the Native American population. Um, but it's also, you know, roads, you know, doing all that, the kind of stuff that federal, that the government does. The land, managing the sale of the public lands, all that. So the the Treasury Secretary, Albert Gallatin, who I think is a major important figure in, should be studied more. Um, he's kind of a, he's a Republican and they're typically more concerned about, you know, concentration of state power, right? Um, but he's, he's kind of like understanding what's needed to really, to really operate the federal government as, as an economic entity. And he's pointing out if you, if you're collecting taxes, okay, at face value in these state banknotes and in Boston, that banknote is, is fully equivalent to specie. But in Ohio and in South Carolina, it's not. Then you are not equally taxing your people. You have unequal taxation. He was really concerned about that. So apparently the debate was very quick. I think that it didn't take much to get to get majorities behind the idea of, yeah, a bank would be, you know, we, we need we need another bank. Um, in order to bring this monetary, to bring greater order to the monetary system. Um, and in my book, I talk about the fact that they, I guess it was sec a Treasury Secretary Dallas, they first tried to accomplish their goals by working with the state banks, the big state banks in the different states. And they would float, you know, float proposals and, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't get any traction. Um, because, because in order for that to work, the state banks had to all agree to accept each other's money at full face value. Which if you're the bank of Boston, you don't want to accept the state bank of some, you know, bank of a state that was started three months ago. Exactly. Cause that, that's risk. Like you're, you're asking me to trust this bank. I don't know this bank. Yeah. Um, and so they were not interested in that. I mean, they were, they were obviously had interbank relationships, but it was with banks they trusted. They had long, they had a history of good business, you know, good conduct, timely payments, and they weren't interested in, in moving beyond that, which is what the, so the second bank comes in. And so the second bank, A, is the only, it's the, by far the largest bank in the country. It has branches and it's going to be a player because it's also the U.S. government's fiscal agent. So all the taxes are flowing through that bank and all the government spending is flowing through that bank. And that puts the bank in a position of being regularly exchanging notes with banks wherever it is. It's not everywhere, but it's in a lot of places. Was it? I'm forgetting now the, the number of branches. It's in the book. People should people should read the book. Uh, yeah. So just a, a quick again, we see the theme of transformation of debt to equity. Uh, private investors could pay for 
the new bank stock of the second bank in the United States, 75% of that they could pay with existing debt that they owe to the U.S. government, which would be bought at a premium. So again, it's that the sovereign uh, debtor is being bailed again by this central bank entity. Um, but this time also we have a financial stability angle uh, in addition to a sort of debt monetization angle, which is that you have these different state bank notes and th they really um, have different levels of solvency, different levels of convertibility. Yeah, so what exactly, when, when we say that the Second Bank of the United States provided liquidity, in quotes, to uh, the, the banknote market, what does that, exactly does that mean? And did they make money from that? Did it benefit the Western banks? Uh, were, were the Western banks unhappy with this? So the banknote market, I think that the Second Bank kind of stayed out of the banknote market, honestly. Um, okay. So we had these brokers that bought and sold banknotes. And so there are roughly three categories that you characterize in, in your article on of what the Second Bank of the United States owns. Number one, discounts. Number two, exchange. And number three, treasury debt. So I only understand what one of those things is. Treasury debt is U.S. government debt. What is discount and what is exchange? Okay. So discounts are basically um, commercial paper, right? So business loans. Right. And it's called a discount because like if you're borrowing ten thousand dollars, that paper would be bought at a discount from face value. And then according to how this the interest rate and then when the bill matures, the debtor pays the full face value. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like and, a treasury bill. Right. Except it's, it's it seems like a lot more risky. I mean, if uh these are basically IOUs that individuals as well as companies are, are paying. I mean, it seems like if, you know, I go to Georgia and I buy something as a New Yorker, how can, you know, if I, why can't I just write something on a piece of paper and I'm, I'm in New York and I, I never pay them back? I mean, it seems like very yeah. possible, very easy to do fraud, especially when there's no airplanes or, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the second bank is not going to lend you unless you are an important business person with a very solid reputation. So all the local, the boards of these different branches were monitoring and screening borrowers. And, you know, when I've talked about the second bank in, in some, in some conferences, people are like second bank, you know, we don't like the second bank because they just lent to wealthy people. And in a way that's right. You know, in a way that's right. Um, but there, but the second banks, you know, its number one job was to kind of improve mo the monetary system. So that meant, you know, being a bit conservative with your lending, probably, you know. Right. And later on, the second bank of the United States may have done a, a good job about that uh, under President Nicholas Biddle, the third president. Uh, but early on, it definitely had some problems. Tell us about that and particularly the corruption of, you know, branch officers lending money to, I think his last name was Jones, or, or, or lending money to themselves, to friends, as well as lending money so that they could buy more of the bank stock to, so the stock of the second bank of the United States could go up. And again, like the first bank of the United States, the second bank of the United States was privately owned, uh, majority privately owned by individuals. And yeah. that, I mean, that seems extremely corrupt. I, I know there are a lot of theories about, oh, can you believe the Fed did this? Can you believe the Federal Reserve did that? Um, but let's just go, whatever's going on today with the Federal Reserve, 
The Federal Reserve is not lending money uh, to individual investors so that they can buy shares in the Federal Reserve. That is not happening. Uh, but it did happen the Second Bank of the United States in the first years, like 1817, 1818, 1819. Yeah. So I don't, I actually don't know a lot about those cases. Um, but I know that, you know, the, 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 the presidents before Biddle were not successful. And there was something that went on with Jones, who had been Secretary of the Navy. Um, but it, it is true that many banks in this period, not just the Second Bank, lent money to people. People used the loans to buy stock in the bank. So that wasn't just the second bank. It was not a good practice. It reminds me a little bit of FTX, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the, those early presidents were not successful. And and I'm not – it, it did, as you as you say, I mean, any, any bank has exposure to, you know, insider fraud. Um, and that's why we've developed all these internal controls over the years. It'd be interesting to know whether that was less of a problem under Biddle. I, I just don't. I just don't know. I mean, Biddle though. Biddle, you know, Biddle had his hand on everything that was going on. Yeah, t- tell us about uh, Biddle and wh- when was there the crash in the bond market? The, the credit market seized up. Was that eighteen nineteen or eighteen twenty five? Yes, it was eighteen nineteen. So we have a panic in eighteen nineteen. Yeah, and there, some of the western branches of the Second Bank had lent on collateral of real estate that was, you know, speculative, turned out to be land whose value that lost a lot of value after the panic of 1819. And the Fed foreclosed, I mean, the Fed, the second bank foreclosed on these borrowers. So there was a lot of bad blood in the Western states because Pete, the second bank had foreclosed on them, right? Um, that's what lenders do. You know, when you are in default of your loan, um, but it didn't it didn't create a lot of good feeling in the West. Now, that changed a lot over time by the time. And we're, I'm not trying to, like, skip over, but like by the time the second bank's charter, again, a 20 year charter is up for renewal. It has a lot of support in the Western states, and that's because the bank, the bank was the bank's exchange business, that second yes. instrument on the bal- on the asset side of the balance sheet, that's domestic bills of exchange that are being used to finance interregional trade. So the Ryan, West- what is a bill of exchange? Okay, so it's um, I'm a I have some packed pork in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. and. I'm going to draw a bill of exchange on my a court, on a business in New in Philadelphia, and they're I'm going to ship my pork to them, and they're going to sell my pork. Okay, mm-hmm. so it but I need I need some way of financing the movement of this pork over to Philadelphia. So I'm going to draw a bill on the guy in Philadelphia. Okay. And I have an arrangement with them where they, they're going to accept that bill when when it's presented to them for payment. So it's like a promise to pay mm-hmm. at some point in the future, after the port gets there, at some different location. Okay. So I'm sorry, how is that different from the discount of the commercial paper? Because the discounts are more like personal IOUs. Okay, okay. 
Yeah, they're more like, yeah, just I. This is specifically collateral collateralized by a certain thing. Yeah, it's a collateralized by, you know, a ship shipments of goods. And so you'd have, you'd include the bill of lading, you know, so you had that value behind it, if you will. So the second bank would buy those bills of exchange. And then they would collect on them so that I so that I, the pork packer in Cincinnati, can get my money today. I don't have to wait for six months until my stuff gets sold. So that's that created a lot of liquidity in Western markets. And and it improved the marketing. So the whole the whole um and, and it was a lot cheaper to move goods around with bills of exchange and drafts on the second bank than with specie. If you pay with specie, you you have to send it down the Mississippi River. That's perilous. And you ship it all the way around to the East Coast. You're, you're paying for freight. You're paying for insurance. Some of the work I've done was like the insurance was a lot. Right. And I, you found that paying in gold, if, if you want to ship gold around, uh, it can it can cost something like 4% of the value of the gold. So it's, it's shipping gold is really a kind of a non-starter. All right, uh, Professor, now I want to go into why the central word central is is in quotation marks in your in your book about the set, second bank. People say, oh, the Federal Reserve is a sec- central bank, uh, the second bank. And the fir- first central, uh, uh, the second bank of the U.S., the first uh, bank of the U.S., they were central banks too. Uh, but what is the key difference between them? And I might uh, ask you about the panic of 1826, where there was kind of a bubble in um, in in state bank notes and a lot of, of loans, and the Treasury had you know printed a lot of money in 1824. And I think there are letters from you know it's on record of uh, Nicholas Biddle saying. Yeah, don't like with, withdraw liquidity from these markets because these state banks are kind of doomed and he kind of let them fail. Uh, in Yeah, in what way is that very different from the Federal Reserve, which is a lender of last resort? So I knew I, I threw a lot at, at you. But. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. So no, the, you caught the really important quotation marks in the title, which is meant to convey the fact that I don't think it really was a central bank. Um, it, it certainly stabilized the monetary system but you know, if you think a key characteristic of a central bank is that it is a lender of last resort, it doesn't seem to me that it was. And that panic of 1825 to 26 is a good example of why. The, the second bank didn't really step in um, to help banks that were in trouble. Um, they actually profited from the rising value of the specie that they held. So they had, at the end of that year, that very bad year for many people, the second bank is kind of saying, we had a really good year. We made a lot of profit on our, on our, on our, on our they're like shorts when the market goes down because they had specie and state bank notes depreciate against that specie. So they had their money, the, the second bank's money was, was, was held strong. Yeah. So, I mean, what a central bank is supposed to do is become less liquid when the banking system needs liquidity, you know, and they're all, you know, the private banks are all trying to get more liquid, but they're all fighting over the same constant stock of cash. Right. Okay? And, and the lender of last resort is, is supposed to provide liquidity 
when the system has no liquidity. Exactly. It's supposed to inject the liquidity, right? And so the second bank could have expanded its own borrowing, right? The second, but it doesn't really do that um, because it's, it's kind of hunkering down, right? It's like, no, no, you're the guy who's supposed to not hunker down. But that was not the philosophy. The philosophy that Biddle had, and as you know from the book, I you know found these letters. I use a lot of the letters that Biddle's writing to the cashiers of the different branches because the branch of Savannah had actually done some lender of last resort stuff with local banks, um, which was probably s- smart. I mean, as long as, as, long as it's, you're, the bank is solvent, as long as the borrower is solvent, then, the, then it's, you'll be okay. Right, because you're going to get repaid. They just can't pay you today. Um, and Biddle is lecturing them. He's saying, "No, no, this is this is not what we do. We want the state banks to themselves carry enough liquidity that they can get through a panic without coming to us." Yeah, yeah. Nicholas Biddle is like, "Are you kidding me? This is this is a gold mine for us. We should uh, we should we should we should let it get worse so that our position will be even." Uh, better over over the state banks. Yeah, and the stockholders didn't want them to be helping the state banks. Right, exactly. They paid a dividend, which was I think it was lowered under the second president. But uh, a lot of stockholders emailed Nicholas Biddle saying six percent. Come on, come on, Nick, you can do better than that. Uh, yeah. I think that he peaked at like seven and a half percent, or maybe even eight uh, percent of the dividends, and that's it's, that's a pretty healthy profit. Eight uh, percent dividend when inflation is essentially at zero. Not not too bad. That was a good investment. Um, and it was steady. You know, a lot of it, it didn't go up and down, you know, with you had a good year, it went up, and we had a bad year, it went down. So there was that, you know, you could kind of count on it. Right. Right. Um, so a critique of the second bank is that it made too much money at the expense of the state banks. How much merit is in that claim? And then I'd love to dig into specifically the balance sheet of the second bank, uh, in particular, like the the earnings on its assets, so discounts, exchanges, and then treasury bills. Or they weren't called treasury bills. Or, um, and and then um, you know I I know you found that its return on assets was not spectacular. However, its return on equity was. Uh, very high and got even higher because the bank became more levered. Actually, let me find it in, in your piece. Uh, sorry. Yeah, One sec. You, you, you wrote that, um, yeah, basically at the beginning, uh, for every dollar of bank equity, they had like a dollar and a half in, in assets. When I, in, but by the end, it was more like $3 for every dollar in equity. So, yeah, what, what, how did the Bank of the U.S. get more leg, second bank of the U.S. get more levered? And uh, did that propose a risk? Yeah. So they got more levered by really growing that domestic bill of exchange business that we were talking about earlier. You know, as more people, people are like moving west, right? The western states are expanding, populations growing, native populations are getting pushed out, pushed into marginal positions so that the settlers could establish farms. So the, the demand for these, this trade finance and you know, is growing and the second bank is accommodating it. So it, it it increased the risk of the bank in the sense that the bank has more capital, sorry, has less capital behind every dollar of assets, mm-hmm. right? But as long as they didn't really compromise on their 
their lending standards for the bills of exchange, it probably didn't create a lot of, you know, unnecessary risk. Um, and so it's this increasing leverage is just a good way, you know, is, well, is a way that many banks over the years have increased their return on equity, even with, you know, without increasing interest rates, increasing the cost of, of loans to borrowers, just by loading more assets on your capital base. Right. I, I think in, uh, you know, learning about the second bank, if you if students read about it at all, unless it's in like a monetary history class, it's that Andrew Jackson waged a war against the central bank, a second bank. Your work uh, focuses much more, as we said, on the plumbing and the, and the finances, which is you know, what, what I'm primarily interested in. So you were know, kind of setting aside this whole Andrew Jackson uh, th thing, but the second bank was not renewed in 1836. What happened to the capital? Did did all the shareholders get a hundred cents on the dollar? Did they get more because the book value was uh, you know higher? Um, it, it was a uh, you know the the, book, the, the st actual assets was higher than the book value, um, or did they not get get everything? Were, were shareholders satisfied? And then you know eight, so Bank of Second Bank of the United States ends in 1836. There's a giant financial recession called the Panic of 1837. Just one year later, is it an accident? So in terms of how was the bank unwound and what was the effect on shareholders? That's a great question. I, 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 I actually don't know if anyone's actually looked at that. Um, but I suspect that some of those shareholders rolled over their stock into the stock of the Bank of the United States of Pennsylvania because Biddle stays in the banking business. He sets up a state chartered bank under Pennsylvania law. Okay. Things do not go well for that bank. And I think those shareholders probably lost everything. Mm. Um, because Biddle just, it was a bad ending to Biddle's career. Let's just put it that way. Um, and there's, you know, of course, there's whether, you know, does, did the removal of the second bank cause the panic of 1837 and the subsequent financial recession of 1839 to 42, um, which I, I think was actually more serious. There was there was a deeper contraction in the real economy in that period. Um, and I've argued that if not the cause of it, it exacerbated it. You know, it's not, you have to do this counterfactual. I mean, if the second bank had still been there, would it have happened? It's, you know, yeah. these, these are really hard questions to answer. Um, but I do think that I've argued in a, my 1998 paper in the Journal of Economic History, that the removal of the deposits, which starts in 1834, Jackson, you know, says we're moving the federal government's deposits out of the second bank. We're just fed up with, you know, mm -hmm. fed up with Biddle. Um, you know, and Biddle was, you know, if I were president, I'd probably be fed up with Biddle too. I mean, because you know, Biddle is. Is, is, you know, really sees himself as the equal of Andrew Jackson, you know. Um, but anyway, so the deposits get moved out and um, there is an, a, a real rapid growth in the state banking system, okay? New equities coming into banks and there's probably an over, an over banking, you know, kind of a financial, excess financial expansion. What, what can I say? Um a lot of new banks get formed and they, they are not, and a lot of them end up failing, you know, by 1842. 
And the second bank, if the second bank had remained, it would have been harder for those banks to enter. But it, but the, but the closure of all these branches, especially in the West, the closure of the second bank branches left a, a vacuum in banking services. So it was just a perfect, and the, and the states are seeing it as, oh, we're going to charter these banks and they're going to lend us money and we can all grow really fast. So what happened to the state bank notes uh, as the second bank of the United States is kind of like a walking zombie, everyone knows it's going to die. And actually, once it does die, are those redeemed at par? Sort of, you know, what's the aftermath? In 1842? No, and sorry, 1836 when it's officially done, right? Oh, when it's officially done. Wait, wait, did, is the second bank ended in 1842 or 1836? It actually is it closes in 1836. Okay, okay. But it starts winding down much earlier. Yeah. Because once the federal government removes its deposits, you know, it kind of starts to wind down earlier. And is it a gentle is it a gentle wind down of everyone's getting their money back, but the game's over, but like don't worry, or is it a, a is it ne- really negative, like a chaos? Again, I, I it's not something I know a lot about, and I'm not. So I think you're going to have to like write that book. That <laughs> <laughs> professor, you know more about this topic than I think anyone on earth. Uh, so, but that's... I'm not aware of any problem with the second bank. Um. I mean, a lot of the direct the the li- on the ba- the liability side of the second bank's balance sheet, right? You have these notes that are circulating. They're five dollar ten. Those are big notes for the time, right? Right. So once the second bank closes, they they just get withdrawn. You know, the the, the notes get paid back into the bank, and they're going to stop issuing new notes. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't leave anybody hanging hanging out with notes they can't do anything with. And then there's these drafts, which are, you know, I'm, I'm in Cincinnati. I need to go pay for my, my imports from New York city. I'm going to write, I'm going to buy a draft on this New York branch of the second bank, because then when I go to New York, that's going to be accepted anywhere at full face value. Okay. So again, the, those drafts are going to be retired. And I, I don't think there's, there was, any loss to creditors of the bank from the bank winding down. Stockholders, I don't know what happened to them. You know, are they just, they get repaid something. If you don't want to reinvest, you get the value of your, you know, and with, yeah, that's, no, that's a really good question. Okay. So the second bank in the United States wound down. Uh, you had an era of free banking for you know almost a century. Uh, in the 1860s, during the Civil War, you had the introduction of the of the greenback, uh, sort of a, a common currency. But after the Civil War, during the Gilded Age, it was you know an era of free banking where anyone could pretty much start a bank. You'd have a state bank charter. Banks failed all the time. There was contagion if. The bank of uh, Jack Farley lent to the bank of Professor Jane Nodell, and I defaulted. My default would cause your default, which would call you know mess with all of your deposits. So so uh, very uh, you know so there would be depre- there would be recessions that would last many many years. Um, uh, we have the Federal Reserve in 1913. The uh, the the narrative. Um, excuse me. Sorry. The the narrative of the reason why the Federal Reserve was created was there was this financial panic in 1907 where lots of speculators had borrowed money and bought stocks with money that they didn't have. 
the economy was going to crash because all these loans were called in as the stock market crashed and the, the value of the collateral went down. It was saved by one man, John Pierpoint Morgan uh, of the you know now uh, eponymous J.P. Uh, Morgan, who told the bank cashiers to, hey, give them the money, lend it out. And he was the lender of last resort. Interestingly enough, when people earlier this summer referred to Sam Bankman-Fried of the now, you know, now disgraced uh, founder of FTX, they said uh, you know, he, he was lending to uh, bankrupt crypto institutions. Uh, we, we now learned he was lending to them with money that he did not have. Uh, but he was called the J.P. Morgan of crypto, not the, not the bank J.P. Morgan of crypto, but John Pierpont Morgan from what he did in 1907. And the narrative is that the Federal Reserve was started so that you can't rely on, on a single man to save the financial institution and be the, the lender of last resort. It shouldn't be a single institution. It should be a, uh, you know, by, by, by a private citizen. It should be an instant, a, a, a centralized entity that is, you know, its full-time job is to do this rather than just like the CEO of, of one of the largest banks. How much truth is there to this narrative? And to the extent that it's a, an overly simplified narrative, what are we missing? Okay. Um, so just to fill in a little bit of the, the gaps, like in the after the Civil War, it was a dual banking system because you had the National Banking Act set up in eight, 1863. So now you, banks could get a charter from their state government or from the national government. Okay, and the national banks, you know, were were regulated by a new department within the Treasury, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. And again, the desire was we want these national banks, we want a national currency, right? We want paper money that is going to be worth the same throughout the country. And those national banks are really ultimately backed up by the federal government, um, not very well known. Not deposits. There was no deposit insurance. But national bank notes, if your bank failed, you could go to the U.S. Treasury and they will give you the face value for it. And sorry, who issued these national bank notes? Banks chartered by the U.S. government that were located all around the country. Okay. And I guess this is a really important distinction that's important all throughout financial history as well as now with, with FTX of the difference between an asset and a deposit. Uh, so if, if I had deposited money with a, and I, but I didn't know any of this before you said it. So yep. interesting. I, if, if I had deposited money, you're saying with a national bank and the, that national bank went down, I would be left in the lurch. If you, however, owned a banknote of a national bank, you could go to the treasury and you would be safe. So that's like a, a primordial early form of, of insurance, not for deposits, but for the notes. Correct. Now the deposits, you were completely out of luck. Because the shareholders of national banks had double liability. Okay. So when your bank failed, it went into a bankruptcy process and there was a receiver that was set up to collect the assets and distribute them among the creditors of the bank. And among the assets, I mean, every stockholder. Like if, if you if you owned two thousand dollars of stock in this bank, you had you had to make four thousand dollars available to the creditors of that bank. Okay. Wow. So this is not like this our new regime, which is there's no liability. You know. Wow. So so yeah. Now if I buy a stock in Goldman Sachs, I'm just picking them out of a hat. 
uh, if I eat the stock's like 300 bucks, if I buy a single share, the most I can lose is 300 bucks. Back then, not true. I could lose 600 bucks. Exactly. And the courts could come after you, and they did. They would chase people down. (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah. So, and a lot of people think, you know, and that we had, national banks had double liability until 1934. They lost it in the, in the, in the, as part of the new deal, which was kind of like, well, wait a second, maybe that wasn't such a bad thing, you know, because, and there's a, there's some interesting papers about, of course, the reason for it was that if they had, they, there would be more, there would be better risk management. Um, but that kind of all assumes that, do, that stockholders can really oversee what banks are doing. That might not be true. Um, but anyway, so back to the narrative about the, the creation of the Fed. It's pretty close. I mean, of course, J.P. Morgan didn't do it all by himself. You know, he organized a group of New York City bankers. And they, as a group, decided which banks to bail out and which banks not to bail out. Okay. And... They made some loans, but the end. But the what what finally ended the panic of 1907 was the arrival of additional gold that we went. Someone went. I think Morgan organized a borrowing gold from one of the European countries, um, and so once the gold came in again, that's the stock of cash increased. Right, you need that stock of cash to increase somehow, and that's. That's what happened. And so a lot of people think that the the New York City banks that had been very involved in managing all these panics of the national banking period were kind of ready not to do that anymore. So they didn't put up a big fight to creating a central bank. Um, and I think the smaller banks were more worried about, about the, the creating the second bank. But certainly the main purpose of the Fed was to prevent these banking panics that had been experienced time and again. And so that is a distinct feature, completely different from the second bank of the United States and the first bank of the United States, which is to monetize debt, Not didn't really care about being a lender of last resort. In this case, the Federal Reserve wants to preserve financial stability and lend to beleaguered banks. In what way would they do that? And I feel like the plumbing of the, the, the Federal Reserve, it's, it's very complicated. Um, uh, uh, yeah, let's, let's, how would they make loans to those banks? And in what way did it really transform? Like, did it you know, sort of take out root and stem all of the old plumbing and put in new, new plumbing where, where now, uh, did, 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 did banks have deposits with the federal reserve? I know now, you know, banks say, Oh, I've got a, a half a trillion dollars of reserves with the thing. And there's the reverse repo facility. But, uh, back then I think a lot of it was I mean, all of it was still backed by gold. So how much of it was backed by gold versus backed by the Federal Reserve? And yeah, tell us about sort of the, 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 new, the okay. new plumbing. Okay, so first of all, there's nothing, nothing in the Federal Reserve Act about like lender of last resort. Yes. Okay. So the idea was, though, that the, the panics up to then may, mainly happened in the fall when there was a big demand for currency to move the crops, the cotton and the wheat and all that stuff. Okay. And then when, when the New York banks didn't have enough currency, because there was a problem with the law under, under National Banking Act in terms of how much currency they could issue. Okay. When they couldn't get enough currency, then there was that a bank run, right? Kind of the sense of, 
oh, so-and-so couldn't get their currency. I'm going to go get all my money out of the bank. Right. And the reason that they couldn't issue enough currency is because it had to be backed by a certain amount of gold and there just wasn't enough gold. It had to be actually backed by debt, U.S. government debt. Right. Another thing from the 1860s. Okay. Yeah. So there's all these inelasticities they refer to, you know. And so the idea behind the Federal Reserve Banks is that they would be a source of currency when there was a shortage of currency. Okay. So that's not bailing out a bank. It's, it's saying a bank is, it's, it's a place a bank can go to. And as long as it has good collateral and the act defined what kind of paper could be discounted, they would take it to the reserve bank. A member could, and the nationally chartered banks had to be members, take it to the bank, the reserve bank, they would discount it, again, buy it at a discount from the face value, and give the bank either Federal Reserve notes or credit its, its deposit account. Okay. But clear, but some, so depending on what the form of, what kind of money was actually needed, but they could issue these Federal Reserve notes. But the idea was that after the, that period of, currency shortage was over, that those notes would be retired. Okay. So I'm actually working now on a paper, I think we were talking about this, that's saying that the Federal Reserve Act itself did not in fact like create whole new plumbing of the kind that we're used to today, where the, the banks keep all their reserves, either directly or indirectly, with the Federal Reserve. That's what reserves are. The Fed, under the Federal Reserve Act, the banks can, would continue to hold gold and greenbacks and silver. And then they would also hold, you know, some, some balances with the, with the reserve banks. So it didn't tear up the pipes. It just added a slightly, uh, added a, a, a new pipe that was small, but it became increasingly large. It over became time. increasingly large, basically, I, I argue, as a result of World War I. Walk us through that. You, you told me uh, earlier this week that World War I was a gift to those who wanted to see the Federal Reserve as a powerful institution. Why? Yeah. So again, with war finance, you know, you needed some way to float all this debt. And if you compare the, the debt issue of right after the U.S. enters the war in April 1917, the size of that debt was of that issue, that just one issue was orders of magnitude larger than any other earlier issuance of debt by the U.S. government. Okay. So they were kind of like, I just really don't know how this is going to work, right? And as they're floating that debt, they're not really having much success in getting banks to buy it because, as you pointed out, the banks aren't supposed to, they're supposed to maintain convertibility into gold. And and they're supposed to like keep their capital ratios in a reasonable place. And right, but sorry, Professor, didn't you say earlier that uh, currency bank notes had to be backed by government debt? And wasn't this a huge amount of government debt? The notes would be issued against government debt, um, but they also had to hold reserves, you know, gold reserves against the deposits that they issued. Okay, so it's a, it's a specific ratio. There's a recipe, 30% this, 30% that, and there's just, a, there's a lot of government debt that went on the market. I, I imagine, though, that it, that amount of government of U.S. government debt was a small fraction of France, Germany, England. But that, that's, a, that's another side. Yeah. Um, and during World War One, a lot of gold was flowing into 
America because America was the breadbasket of the world. It was selling all the you know machines and industrial the the, the uh, weapons. Uh, gold was flooding out of Europe because they were borrowing you know way more money than they ever thought possible to to fund the war, and so money was flowing into the U.S. So the finances of the U.S. were decent during World War One. But then they did issue a lot. The government issued a lot of debt. So sorry. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. So during neutrality, a lot of gold came in um, to the country. And so the banks were pretty liquid in the sense they had a lot of, you know, this gold. But it didn't mean that they could then necessarily absorb all the debt that the U.S. government was trying to issue. So in, in June of 1917, there were a bunch of amendments made to the Federal Reserve Act. And you and I were talking about how these are amendments that the leadership, some of the leaders of the Fed had been had been wanting like for a couple of years, because as soon as they started to operate these reserve banks under the rules of the game of the 1913 Act, they're kind of like, there's no way you can run a bank this way. I mean, because like some of these people had been like in banking, like, you know, Benjamin Strong at Bankers Trust, um, Paul War- Warburg at Kuhn Loeb. They're like, this is a crazy way to set up a bank, you know. So they're already like, you know, like the note issue provisions of the Federal Reserve Act are just incredibly arcane um, and very limiting. It's almost like more limiting than the National Banking Act was. So so anyway, so the once though you had to find a way to quickly expand the capacity of the monetary and credit system. Um then people started like, okay, well, let's, we can let go of some of these other things we thought were so important back in 1913. And so the Fed becomes a very important intermediary. So what they, uh, after the 1917 amendments, they're able to lend to member banks for member banks to loan make loans on collateral of the new debt that, you know, either they, they themselves, the banks are buying the U S government debt. And at the same time, they're borrowing from the fed. So there's, okay. So there's, uh, the federal reserve is expanding its balance sheet and someone is buying government debt. It's not the federal reserve who's buying the debt. We would never allow that. That's, you yeah. know, that's off the, that's off the, yeah. you know, we'd never do that, but it's, they're yeah. lending to banks so that they can, the banks can buy government debt. Um, or buy it and then eventually sell it to somebody else. So they're kind of marketing the debt. Right. And that, so that reminds me of quantitative easing where, oh, the, 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 you know, the Federal Reserve is buying U.S. government debt of treasuries, but it would never buy them from the treasury on, on an issue. It buys them from J.P. Morgan, who just bought it from the treasury. It's like, you know, one degree of separation. Okay. So that's 1917. Um, I feel like we could talk about the 1920s and the Great Depression, which is so interesting, or we could zoom forward to to the, the present. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the Great Depression. I think it's a good way to kind of like a cornerstone on this, um, because the the Federal Reserve is widely thought to have failed during the Great Depression. Okay, and um. That's probably true. Um, but again, it could have been not a problem of bad decisions, but bad rules. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, the act is, is amended, you know, so the whole, you know, the whole financial history you can think of, 
as, um, you know, when there are problems and instability, there's some kind of legislative response, like kind of political response, you know, ideally, you know, and ideally it's kind of a rational political response that we're going to, yeah, that was a problem that didn't really work out. So, so we have to change things. Now, the problem is you're always fighting the last panic, like the Fed in 1913. Future panic is going to be different. So what's happening in, in um, 1929 to 1933 are all these bank failures. And a lot of the fail the failures are happening with these small banks that are not members of the Fed. The members of the Fed are larger, more more the kind of the major cities, New York City, you know, all these, you know, there. So so they have access to the discount window, which is where you could a bank would borrow for the purpose of addressing a short run liquidity problem. But the where the bank fails are happening, those those banks are not members of the Fed. And yes. the feds, the feds kind of like, ah, you know, we're not too worried about that. You know, not our problem, you know, until right. it is their problem. And one, one bank, uh, which is covered in, uh, the, the bankers who broke the world by Leoquad Ahmed is a bank that tail in tailored to, uh, mostly, mostly Jewish immigrants who worked in the garment industry. And that bank just to take a full circle was called the bank of the U S Oh, yeah. But it was not a central bank. It had no backing whatsoever. That That's went under. I suspect that probably may have not been a reserve bank. Uh, and yeah, so, so banks that did not have access to the n network of, of liquidity from the Federal Reserve, they went under. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and just the, the banking panics in the early 1930s, they were severe. Uh, did the Federal Reserve save the banks that were member banks? Because I know, you know, so many. There's so many bank failures, right? Oh, there's lots of bank failures. I think there there are some district reserve banks that are that are actually providing some lend, good lender of last resort services to and stabilizing their regional banking systems. Um, but but the, the Fed's hands are kind of tied because there's, we're still on gold. Yeah. So there, there's still this requirement to keep maintain some minimum reserve of gold against your notes. Right. So then banks called in their loans from businesses. So then businesses had to pay. So then they couldn't make payroll. And then it's a, it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Okay. So yeah, the, the gold standard, uh, in, it's my understanding that in scholarship, the gold standard is seen as a major cause of the, uh, Great Depression. Uh, would you say number one that this, the scholarship is somewhat consistent, and number two, your personal opinion? Would you what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I can I can Green has this book called you know Golden Fetters, you know, which, yep, yep. which is international. He deals not which is the U.S. but you know England, France, all the all the yeah. and maybe I think that's a maybe a reference to the word fetters, a reference to uh, John Maynard Keynes, maybe. It could be, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. I think that's right um, because you know Keynes saw this problem too. Um, you know, we, we think of this gold standard as being very stabilizing, right? That's people that, you know, proponents of the gold standard will say, you know, that brings a discipline to the banking system and to central banks and to governments that is good for price stability over the long run. But it's not so good for this kind of instability, which is which is related to bank failures and and loss of confidence in banks leading to bank runs, 
a run for liquidity and the stock of gold is basically fixed. You know, the short mm -hmm. run, you can't, all you can do is import from somewhere else, but that's just making it harder for people, you know, in your trading partner. So there are people today, Professor, who have a lot of thoughts about can central banks print money? And they, they have that question today. My question is, could the Federal Reserve print money in the 1930s, 1920s? Or did the gold standard constrain their ability to, quote, print money? And I, I think part of, the, part of the reason this answer is so hard to come by is because the question, the phrase print money is, is quite nebulous. Right. So, so if print money means issue banknotes, yes, they, they could and they did issue banknotes. Um, and there was no, in terms of just demand for currency, they met all the demand for currency. So by 1913 standards, you know, they, they were good at what they did in terms of providing currency that was needed. You know, and so currency, currency is different from banknotes because you still have a lot of people who don't have a bank account this period of time. And historically, policymakers in the United States felt like those they needed to be protected a bit more than bank depositors. Because if you're depositing in a bank, it means on average you're a little bit wealthier and you you should just choose a good bank to put your deposit in. <laughs> but the, the the banking panics are ended in the 1930s, not because of the Fed, but because of Roosevelt, the banking holiday, and and deposit insurance. Yes. And he increased the the gold price. He devalued the dollar. Yes. And how did he do that? Was it a, a treasury secretary? Uh, it was an executive order. He yeah. They found some authority that... He, you know, that he could use as president just to say, you know what, the, the price of the, the dollar price of gold is no longer $20 and 67 cents. It's $35. Yeah. Well, I think it was, they sold, they sold gold from like Fort Knox, right? Well, sold gold. Like for, they sold of the, the government's holdings of gold, like in the treasury, right? Or I don't know if they did that. Okay. Okay. I don't know if they did that. But the gold is there, you know, to kind of meet claims. Someone says, you know, I've got $20.67, give me an ounce of gold. Now, the U.S. is also moving off and further and further off the gold standard because by 18, the 1930s, the, or maybe this is happening later, but at some point, you, a U.S. citizen could no longer go to the Treasury with a $10 bill and get gold. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the gold convertibility was just with other countries. Right. But didn't all of them eventually suspend? I think that Britain was the last to suspend, but I think maybe Germany suspended first, then France, then England. So there was a time when no one was convertible, right? Yeah, you mean during the Great Depression? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, they suspended, you know, so they say, we're not going off permanently, we're just suspending. And there is a, it's pretty well agreed that the countries that suspended early recovered earlier, you know, because like they're France. able just to expand their, you know, you know, do more borrowing and spending and bring the economy back. Right. And as so you have the, the Bretton Woods conference, which says currencies are, can be, or should be backed by gold, but, um, uh, well, yeah, what is the Bretton Woods conference again? And then also I really want to talk about the Euro dollar system, the offshore dollar system, how, <laughs> offshore banks not within the U.S. would be able to 
essentially create and lend against uh, uh, dollars that they can essentially print from nothing. And uh, I, I know that system is, is really important. So yeah, Bretton Woods and the, the Eurodollar system. So Bretton Woods put the dollar at the center of the international monetary system. So the idea was we're still going to be based on gold, but it's the dollar that's convertible to gold and all the other currencies are going to convert to dollars at fixed prices. It was mm-hmm. a fixed interest rate system. Um, but the credibility of the system rests importantly on there not being too many dollars in relationship to the amount of gold owned by the U.S. US government. Um, and that basically comes apart in, in part because of these euro dollars, Vietnam War financing, um, France. Fr- France was like not a, did not love Bretton Woods. They felt that this gave the U.S. an exorbitant privilege, is what De Gaulle called it. And it did, because it meant that the U.S. could could finance its balance of payments deficits by just quote unquote printing money because the rest of the world would be happy to absorb more deposits, whether they're deposits in a London bank or if it's a central bank in Europe, they're, they're accumulating deposits in the federal reserve bank of New York and they're as good as gold. And so that's, that's a cert, definitely a privilege that we, continue to enjoy, um, that we benefited from, we, the United States, benefited from enormously in the pandemic and in the financial crisis mm-hmm. um, because the rest of the world was really, but if the rest of the world doesn't want to hold a seemingly infinite amount of your money, <clears throat> then you are constrained as a government. As a, as a national government, you can't do as much as a government that issues the reserve currency can. can. Mm-hmm. And is this when the dollar became the global world standard? Is this when you had when there was a global economic slowdown? The dollar tended there didn't tend to be a dollar squeeze, and foreign currencies weakened against the dollar because they owed money that was often denominated in dollars. So they had to print their currency to pay back loans because the loans were being recalled. Uh, and yeah, was I? Um, I guess the was this a, this was a somewhat more stable system than the 1930s, but it not completely stable. Not completely stable. <laughs> yes, but, but you know, today, as in, I would say the the gold standard, the national banking period, through, throughout all this period that we've been talking about. You know, if you look at the international monetary stability depends less on, you know, are the are the currencies pegged to something real like gold and more on effective cooperation among the central banks. This is what Eichen Green argues, and I think it's a pretty good argument. Because um, in the history of the, like the gold standard, which is supposed to be so stable, you find all these little stories of like crises. You know, the Bank of England is worried that it doesn't have enough gold. There's going to be a run on it. And the Bank of France ships some gold over, you know. So because they all have a collective interest in stability, right? And so we need more of that kind of international cooperation 
on the monetary front and many other fronts, but we've been talking about money here today. And Professor, when did it emerge the dual mandate of the Federal Reserve to uh, moderate inflation as well as have a, a you know, low unemployment rate? Ah, that's a great question. I have to look it up a little bit, but I think that really probably after the Treasury Fed Accord, right? Because before that, if all they're doing is keeping interest rates pegged, there's no, that's their job. That's all they're doing. <laughs> they're buying and selling government securities to keep the interest rate where the, inter the, the government, where the Treasury wants the interest rate to be. But once it has control over the interest rates, then it's saying, okay, so we, we're going to, we care about full employment and price stability. And that's what we're going to pursue. And that's understanding that at some points in time, at some points in the business cycle, you're going to prioritize one over the other, right? Mm -hmm. In a recession, we're going to care more about unemployment. But in an overheated economy, we're going to care more about price inflation, right? Um, and then things didn't go very well in the 70s, which gave rise to Volcker. And, you know, Volcker had to apply, you know, discipline, if you will, um, relentlessly. And eventually it worked, but it only, it only worked by, by creating a very deep recession. So you can ask, you know, was it worth it? Yeah, so now Fed Chair Jay Powell facing a you know, similar conundrum of inflation being high. Um, and he's raised interest rates drastically, and other central banks have followed suit. As a historian, what lessons do you learn from from history, let's say of the 1980s of, of Volcker, about whether it might, you know, the, these efforts to tame inflation might be successful, and and yeah, what their cost might be? Right. So, I think my my main critique of the Fed now would be that the, the, the 2020s are not the same as the 1980s. And you know, the, the world economy is more open. And a lot of our problems, inflation, sources of inflation today are these supply chain problems, which were not really a problem in the 1980s. In the 1980s, it was definitely you know, aggregate demand growing too fast, right? Um, in relationship to the supply of goods and services, which was growing at a you know decent clip, but now we've got these you know shortages of goods and services, supply chain problems, the Ukraine war. So in that setting, when you increase interest rates, you could actually be making some of your supply side problems worse. Mm -hmm. But we don't have a lot of good policy tools to deal with supply. We've been, we've you know unlike people who've lived in more constrained economies are used to shortages and, and, you know, constraints on the supply side. We in the United States and the Western world generally are used to having an abundance of everything all the time. Um, and I think we're moving into a world where that's going to be less true. Generally. Thank you, uh, professor. It's been an absolute uh, privilege to, to pick your brain about this stuff. My, my final question is about the fall of crypto exchange FTX. What do, how do you think mainstream financial monetary historians such as yourself 
will remember and scrutinize this scandal, you know, which occurred in November 2022, uh, will it be a minor footnote in financial history? Will it be something that maybe takes up a chapter? Will books be written about it? And, and what lessons might be learned? What parallels could be drawn? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I really think we'll look back and say this was a turning point that led to major regulation and rethinking of the, you know, how much we're going to, you know, are we going to continue to segregate the mainstream banking system from crypto? Are we going to try to tie crypto in to the banking system that is backed up by deposit insurance and, and, and lender of last resort in order to create a more stable environment for everybody? But again, it, it, there's a lot of risk in doing that, you know, but if you can't control it anyway, maybe you should try. Well, Professor, thank you again. It's been an absolute joy. Um, yeah, people want to get in touch with you, learn more about your work. Uh, where can they go? Of course, the book is Second Bank of the United States, Central Banker in an Era of Nation Building. But yeah, where can people learn more about your work? Just go to University of Vermont and look up Jane Nodell and you'll you'll get to a, you know my page with my contact information. The page is a little out of date, um, but um, would love to hear from anyone from email with any, with any follow-up conversation. Thanks Wonderful. so much for having me, Jack. It's really been fun. My pleasure. There is something that you need to be doing right now, and that is reading the BlockWorks daily newsletter. For top market insights and the latest in crypto news, you have to subscribe to the BlockWorks daily newsletter, and you can do so by clicking on the link in the description to this video or by visiting blockworks.co forward slash newsletter.